Well, good morning, everyone. You, you made it. How many of you are out really early this morning shoveling snow? I was out at 5.30. It was a balmy seven degrees. It was awesome. I am glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me if you have them. Uh, and if not, you should find one you can use down in one of the chair racks around you. Uh, open to John chapter 2, the New Testament. As most of you know, we're in a series right now called Reclaiming Christmas. Back in, uh, back in the year of 1870, when uh, our federal government declared December 25th a national holiday, it was intended uh, to be a day of religious and spiritual commemoration. Uh, it, it was an opportunity for Americans to get off work and uh, to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But as we all know, over the years, uh, Christmas has become more secularized, more commercialized, uh, to the point where uh, Jesus can get overlooked. And so we're trying to change that. We're trying to uh, reclaim Christmas by reclaiming Jesus, uh, not just in a schmarmy, uh, nostalgic, crush scene way, but in a historic and realistic sense, perhaps even in ways we've never thought of, like Jesus being a refugee, Jesus being an activist standing up for the poor. And so this morning, I want to, uh, I want to consider how Jesus was somewhat of a rebel, and I want to do that by looking at an event that the Apostle John writes about in his biography of Jesus. Uh, it's certainly not a Christmas text, but it certainly is an interesting one. So uh, in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, the Apostle reports this. He says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. Uh, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you give us to show, uh, to show us, uh, what, what sign can you show t- us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples uh, recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, for me it's fascinating how at times Jesus would describe himself as being gentle and humble in heart. And uh, he, he demonstrated that that was true over and over again through his love, his compassion, and the mercy that he extended to, uh, to men and women from all walks of life. He, he often talked to people about turning the other cheek and about loving one's enemies. The Apostle Peter says that when Jesus' enemies hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Uh, when he suffered at their hands, he made no threats. And uh, all of that paints a picture of Jesus, at least in my mind, as a, as a person of patience, great patience, control, kindness, and compliance. And yet here, in this text, Jesus seems very different. I mean, we see him expressing anger, actually, actually taking a whip and emphatically chasing animals and people out of the temple, upsetting tables, and causing quite a scene, I'm sure. And I don't know, I, I mean, I could be wrong in this, but I, I'm guessing that, that most of us, when we think of Jesus, we think of the gentle loving, compliant guy, not this, not this one, right? In fact, this account may cause some of us to wonder, what's the deal? Was Jesus schizophrenic? Was he, did he have some kind of dissociative disorder that was rearing its ugly head? The answer to that is no. Jesus was perfect. But because you and I have never met a perfect human being, 
we struggle with his uh, personality paradox. You know, it's, it's hard for us to reconcile some of Jesus' words and behaviors. In short, Jesus surprises us at times, and he should. Why? Well, look, every now and then I hear people talk about what they believe, and inevitably someone will say, you know, well, I, I prefer to think of God this way. And when, when I hear that statement, in my, in my brain, I'm saying to myself, well, with all due respect for everyone's right to an opinion, who really cares how you prefer to think of God? That's really not how things work in life. In life, do personal preferences dictate reality? No. For example, let's say you're driving down a dark, winding country road through the forest, trees all around you, and the road is just, is just really curvy, curve after curve after curve, and you're just getting really sick of all the turning, and you look ahead, and here comes another curve, and so you say, you know, I prefer to think of this road as straight so I don't have to turn. You don't do that, do you? No. Instead, despite your preferences, your opinions, your likes and dislikes, you submit to reality and you drive accordingly or else you plow into a tree, i.e., you don't make demands of the road. The reality of the road makes demands on you. So here's my point. If the God in your mind always aligns with your preferences and your opinions and your likes and dislikes, then that deity is one of your own making because the God of your imagination will, will never surprise you. Never disturb you, never frustrate you, never confuse you, never challenge you, or make demands on you. Never. Jesus, however, does all of those things. For he is the incarnation of God, almighty deity in the flesh. Therefore, he will surprise, he should surprise us, even disturb us at times. And for me, what Jesus does in the temple initially is, is quite surprising. Dare I say, a bit confusing, which begs the question, what was happening, and why was Jesus acting the way he was? So let's consider first the, uh, the context of the event. Apostle John says it was Passover time in Israel, which means Jewish people from all over, not just the country, but all over that region of the world, would come and converge on Jerusalem to remember and celebrate God's rescuing his people uh, from captivity in Egypt. And it was a great big celebration. The celebration involved worship, involved prayer, special meals together, and sacrificial offerings. Uh, scholars estimate that the population of Jerusalem and the surrounding area during Passover week would, in the first century would balloon from about 80,000 people up to 500,000. And the temple was the happening place. It was the place to be. It was the primary destination. And because many traveled such long distances to get to Jerusalem, you know, for people transporting all their stuff, including their own lambs and oxen and doves to offer and sacrifice, was, was just impractical. And so local merchants would sell to out-of-towners whatever they needed for the celebration. Uh, some offered to exchange currency as well. And so, you know, these weren't bad things necessarily. In fact, in many respects, they were very helpful. However, the marketers were not out in the streets selling and exchanging money. They weren't even on the temple stairs doing it. They were doing it inside the temple courts, in the very place where worship, prayer, and heartfelt sacrifices were to be offered to God. And then on top of that, the dealers would artificially inflate their prices, gouging and taking advantage of visitors for their own personal financial gain. And this is what, this is what Jesus sees and experiences as he enters the temple courts. 
this sort of chaotic, haggling, extorting marketplace atmosphere, and he rebels against it. He rebels against it. Now, I realize that the term rebel tends to carry negative connotations for us, but keep in mind, a rebel is simply someone who stands in opposition to an established authority. Not all rebellion is bad or immoral. You know, I have to tell you, I have a very strong rebellious streak in me. I mean, it runs deep. You ask my wife, she'll tell you. You can ask my mom. My mom's still around. She'll tell you it's been true ever since I was a little kid. She thought I was going to be in big trouble when I got older. Because I would, if she, she would tell me to do something, I would do the opposite. I wouldn't just think about doing the opposite. I often did the opposite would, and, and still have that streak in me, that rebellious streak, which indicates my rebelliousness is born more out of pride and selfishness and stubbornness and sin than anything else. And that's true of most of us. But that was not at all true of Jesus. I mean, his rebellion was born out of righteousness. His anger was justified. His stand against the religious authorities and some of the practices of his day was morally good and absolutely warranted. See, in many ways, religious life in uh, first century Israel had lost its way. In contrast to ancient paganism, as you know, the Israelites believed in and worshipped one true God. Uh, and for them, loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength was central. In fact, generations earlier, Moses gave the people some laws that helped provide a framework within which that kind of worship and focus, that loving focus, could take place. But over time, there arose some religious experts who kept adding to the scriptures and coming up with more and more man-made rules and regulations and restrictions uh, to such a degree that by Jesus' day, Judaism had become a religious system that was corrupt and had lost its focus. And Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say about it. He had some harsh things to say about that complex legalism and the self-proclaimed experts who created it. He told them that they were hypocrites. He called them arrogant, self-righteous individuals who looked good on the outside but were full of greed and wickedness on the inside. He uh, condemned them for burdening people with a performance-oriented system that they themselves couldn't live up to. And he denounced them for allowing the temple to become religiously mechanical. And so when Jesus enters the temple courts and he, and he sees what was going on and he reacts to it the way he does, make no mistake, he, he was turning over way more than just the tables and, of the merchants and money changers. He was turning over the whole system. He was rebelling against what religion had become, an empty, spiritually bankrupt system of works and rituals that was, that was overwhelming people and actually pushing people away and keeping people from God. And this temple incident, you know, is just one example of Jesus bucking the system. I mean, much of what he taught, much of what he did was intentionally subversive, and, 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 and the religious elite hated him for it, absolutely hated him for it. And, you know, uh, up until recently, I, I hadn't noticed this, or at least I hadn't thought much about it, but there's an incredible irony to what Jesus did. Rebel Jesus essentially comes onto the historic scene and begins calling people out of religion, while at the same time calling them out of irreligion. I know that may sound confusing, but it's true. I mean, think about it. What is religion? Religion is generally defined as a set of beliefs, rites, rituals, practices that people do in, in worship of a deity in order to make themselves acceptable. 
It's primarily a, a good works oriented, prove yourself worthy approach to God. But Jesus comes along and he says to people, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You'll find, you'll find rest in me. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there's no questioning what Jesus was saying to people. He was saying to them, look, the burden of works-oriented religion is debilitating. It's guilt-inducing. It's, it's discouraging. It'll crush you. It will crush you because no matter how hard you try, no, no matter how morally good you may be, no one is perfect. No one, not even the religious elite. And therefore, no one can merit their way to heaven. As broken, sinful, imperfect human beings, our only hope is found in the forgiving grace of God. And Jesus says, I've come to make that grace available to everybody. In fact, right after Jesus makes this statement, come to me, you who are weary and burned, I'll give you rest. Right after he makes this statement, he ends up in a confrontation with the Pharisees. Because they knew what the, this rebel was doing. They knew what he was saying. He was calling people out of their burdensome religion. He was freeing them from it. But with that said, Jesus was also calling people out of their irreligion. What do I mean? Well, it, it's somewhat popular right now. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's somewhat popular right now, in Christian circles at least, to, to suggest that Jesus was irreligious. And there's actually a couple YouTube videos that have become very, very popular. That Jesus, has, he was irreligious, he was anti-religion, he actually hated religion altogether. But that's a bit of a misnomer. Because Jesus, he was religious in a sense. He was religious in the sense that he went to synagogue. He went to temple services. He participated uh, in the feasts and the holy days. He sacrificed. He was baptized and told his followers to be baptized. He knew the scriptures. He taught the scriptures. And understand, Jesus did not rebel against the worship of God and some of the practices, some of the disciplines that were part of that. In fact, he was inviting those who had abandoned God, who had given up on, on God, to re-engage, to believe and to become part of an authentic worshiping community. And see, this is what makes Jesus so absolutely unique. He called people out of irreligion and out of empty religion and invites them into a new, right, loving, transforming relationship with God. And how was that relationship made possible? Not through rules and regulations, but through Jesus himself, which is what he was getting at when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus was essentially saying, look, I've come to do for you what, you what you could never do for yourselves, to live the perfect life that's impossible for any of you to live, to suffer the death you all deserve to die and be resurrected from dead so that by grace through faith in me, Jesus says that you, you are forgiven and you're granted life. Or another way to think of it is to say, the rebel Jesus came to right the rebellion of humanity. It's not about what we can do for God. It's about what God has done for us. That was and that is the good news. The gospel of Christ. And it created, I mean, it created a subversive movement whereby believing in this rebel and his teaching was outlawed for the first three centuries of the church. With his followers eventually becoming known as Christians, literally little Christs, little rebels who went on to change the commu their communities, their culture, and the world. And here's the reality. 
what was true of first century believers remained true today. That if and when we put our faith in, in, in Jesus, I mean, when we honestly believe and we experience the grace and forgiveness of God, it changes things. This inner spiritual transformation begins to take place whereby we become more and more and more like our rebel leader. Faith in Jesus results in a, in a radical reprioritization of all that we deem important and valuable. It changes everything. And rather than acquiescing to, to the ways of, of the world, we're compelled to rebel. To rebel in a good sense. To rebel in a righteous sense. We rebel against empty, works-oriented, ritualistic religion. And instead, we joyfully live, love, worship, serve together through and by the grace of God. We rebel against sin and evil, recognizing that, that our Creator knows what is right and good and healthy and best for us, and so we relentlessly and unapologetic, unapologetically pursue those things and encourage others to pursue them. We rebel against arrogant, pharisaical judgmentalism and the temptation to view ourselves as spiritually superior to others. We rebel against spiritual consumerism. Instead of coming and saying, what is, what's in this for me? We ask, how can I help? How can I, how can I give? How can I serve? We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, like Jesus, we value others above ourselves. We rebel against racism. We see every human being as being created in the image of God and loved by God. And therefore, we rebel against hate by actively loving our neighbor, no matter who they are, where they're from, what they look like, walk like, talk like, and what they believe. We, we love them, intentionally love them, even if there are perceived enemies. We rebel against injustice. We stand up for the oppressed and the, mar the marginalized. And finally, we actively rebel against selfishness and greed by giving generously of our time, of our energy, and yes, even our money. In the name of Jesus who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make no mistake, the rebel Jesus calls us to use our affluence for the purpose of influence in the lives of people who have neither. Now, as all that starts to sink in, let me ask you something. What do you think about the church in America today? What do you think about it? Does it demonstrate and reflect this kind of Christ-likeness? And understand, when I say the church, I mean Christians. I mean people. The church is people. It's not buildings. The church is people. You are the church. Does the church today demonstrate and, demonstrate and reflect this kind of Christ-likeness? I mean, tr tr trust me, there's rebellion in the church, but is it the godly, righteous kind? Is it the kind that follows the example of Jesus? And I'll be honest with you about it. You know, as I look at the church in our culture, from my perspective, from my position, here's my concern. My concern is that far too many of us, we who call ourselves Christians, are convinced that Jesus is to be worshiped, but not followed. Worshipped, but not followed. In other words, for many, Christianity begins with the opening hymn on Sunday morning and ends with the closing prayer. We've compartmentalized faith. We've, we've narrowed it down to an hour a week. And if that is the case, 
then we need to rebel against that. Because this is not Christianity. It's a part of it. It's important for us to come together, to worship, to grow, to learn, uh, to, uh, uh, to encourage each other. But this is not Christianity. This is not all there is to Christianity. It's a very small part of it. To worship Jesus is to follow Jesus every single day. To believe in Jesus is to be transformed by Jesus every single day. And the only way to know if that's happening is to actually know who he is. Because that's the only way we can tell if we're becoming more like him. Do we know who he is? The real Jesus? I'm not, I'm not sure we always do. I've been reading this book titled Re-Jesus by Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. They're both, they're both theologians. They're both missiologists from Australia, a very secular culture. Uh, and their contention is that it's very, very easy for the church to lose its way, to lose its focus by losing sight of the real Jesus. And they argue that as Christians, our imaginations can, can easily become captive to the dominant forces in our culture, whether those forces are economic, political, religious, or ideological. In other words, Jesus morphs. He begins to, to conveniently align with our personal opinions and cultural preferences. He becomes a Jesus of our own making. And our Christianity becomes spiritually impotent, religiously mechanical, viewed simply as what happens on one day a week. And so the authors present some questions that, in their opinion, should and need to be asked of all believers in all churches, anytime, anywhere, any place, including right now, right here. Questions like, what ongoing role does Jesus the Messiah play in shaping your life and your understanding of the spiritual movement that originated in him? How do you see those things? How does that shape your life? Now, they also ask, how is, how is our Christian faith and practice informed and shaped by the Jesus we meet in the New Testament Gospels versus a Jesus of our own cultural imaginations? And then they ask, in how many ways do we domesticate the rebel Jesus in order to sustain our comfortable religiosity? Domesticated Jesus. Those are some hard questions. But for the sake of our faith, for the sake of the church, for the sake of a broken world, we need to ask them. And we need to answer them honestly. In case you didn't notice, each of the questions centered in and around who? Jesus. Why? Because knowing him, ultimately knowing the real him, is what makes the difference in our lives, in our churches, and in our world. Frost and Hirsch explain it this way. They say, we believe that Christology, which simply means the study and understanding of Christ, they say, we believe that Christology is the key to the renewal of the church in every age and in every possible situation it might find itself. The church must always return to Jesus in order to renew itself. When for whatever reason the church gets stuck or loses its way in the world, it needs to recover its primal identity in its founder. And then they go on to say it's like this. It's like, a, it's like a computer. When things go haywire and all else fails, we reboot it. By rebooting, uh, rebooting a computer, we, we restore its original operational settings, thus allowing it to function properly again. The software is back in sync with the hardware again. This is precisely the image we wish to convey. 
that by rebooting the church to Jesus, it will recover itself and become fully operational again. Now, I don't, I don't know how you react to that or how you feel about it, but for me, as I look at, as I look at things, I just honestly believe the church in our culture desperately needs a reboot, a reboot to Jesus, to who he was, to who he actually is, and what this, what this is all about. And yet, yet, here's the thing. It's really difficult to do it, if not impossible, to put him, the real Jesus, in a box. How do you, how do you box in God? Jesus was gentle, but he was tough. He was compassionate and assertive. He was truthful, confrontive. He was compliant yet radical. He was calming yet disruptive. He was predictable yet unpredictable. He was a mix of justice, kindness, judgment, and grace. And he surprises us and challenges us. And I, and I re- look, I realize, I, I, I realize it may sound cool and trendy and edgy and hip to label Jesus a rebel. But trust me when I tell you, I have no interest in being culturally edgy or hip but I have every interest in being historically, scripturally, and spiritually accurate. Jesus was and is the perfect, righteous rebel. And it's through him and him alone, unrighteous human rebellion finds forgiveness. We experience grace and life, and the world finds hope. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would um, give us the courage to ask hard questions. Do we know the real Jesus? It's easy to say yes, but I'm not convinced it's true for even myself. And it may be true, Lord, that we need a reboot. We need to um, reacclimate ourselves to Jesus, the rebel, who turned the religious status quo on its head, who offered to free people from burdensome rules and regulations, and by grace, offer them, offer them life, offer them a relationship with you, their creator, that was good and right and healthy and restored. May the Jesus that we worship this, this Christmas be the true one, not one of our imaginations, not one of our cultural preferences, but the true Jesus, the rebel Jesus. It's his name we pray. thank you for uh, being with us this morning and uh, I want to let you know what's happening next weekend. We're moving all of our services uh, that are normally on Sunday morning all to Saturday so we're going to have five Christmas Eve services they start at uh, 2 3.30, 5, 6.30 and 11. I want to make sure I get that right. Yeah. Okay so there's plenty of options for you so that all of our services next week will be on Christmas Eve. Uh, my favorite is the 11 o'clock one at night and we'll get out of here about one o'clock on Christmas morning. It's going to be awesome. So we're looking forward to that. So invite some friends, come. I think you're going to love the service and our time together. And then also let you know, as we have in years past, the Sunday following Christmas, uh, 
we're going to be having services, but not here. The church will be meeting all over in our homes with our families. Um, it's, we, want to, we want to invite you into a true Sunday Sabbath where you just spend time with your family, your friends. You can have a little service of your own. You can read scripture together. You can pray. Maybe there's someone you know who's alone. You can invite them over or someone's in need. You can make them a meal. But uh, the Sunday after, which would be uh, January 1st, would be a Sunday Sabbath. And part of the reason for doing that, and, and actually, if you've been around long enough, you know that um, last year, and we're having again this year, we take a Sunday in the spring where we don't meet here. We go out and we serve the community. Part of doing that is to, to make sure we get the fact that this is not Christianity. It's just an hour a week where we come together and worship, yeah, but our lives are lived out in the world the rest, the rest of the week. And um, that's where we serve the most. That's where we love people and care for others and represent Jesus. And that's what Christianity is about. And um, so hopefully you understand that. You know, I realize that the holidays can be hard for some folks, so if you're, you're struggling a little, um, you know, on being alone or you had some loss uh, this year, you want someone to pray with you, um, certainly we have some of our prayer team folks down here that you can pray with. One thing I forgot, if you go to our website for Christmas Eve, uh, you can click on uh, an, an, to an app that will let, let us know what service you plan on coming to. Uh, no, you don't need tickets or anything. We're just trying to judge the, the numbers in each of the services so that we can serve people best. So if you could do that, that'd be great. It'd be very helpful to us. You just go to the site, click on, and let us know what, what hour you're coming. If you could do that, that'd be great. But anyway, I'm looking forward to it. So Christmas will be here before we know it. Let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed. Now, Father, I pray that as the church leaves the building, that we recognize our lives are lived outside these walls the majority of the week. And so we, may we live them in such a way, with such humility and grace, kindness and compassion, that uh, we point people to Jesus, the rebel Jesus. And now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church. Bring us back together on Christmas Eve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you on Saturday.